0: Welcome, everyone, to today's uh, GC Roundtable podcast. Uh, Today is July 28, 2020. I'm Sarah Swink from the law firm of Nixon Peabody. And today I have two amazing guests with us. Um, Peter, do you want to introduce yourself? Although, you know, you almost don't even need to introduce yourself. But why don't you introduce yourself to the audience?
1: You bet. This is Peter Leibold, and my claim to fame is I am the. Former CEO of the American Health Lawyers Association, uh, and I currently serve as the Chief Advocacy Officer for Ascension, um, which is a, self, a health system uh, here in the United States. Uh, and we have uh, providers in roughly 20 states uh, and about 150,000 employees
2: spread throughout those 20 states.
0: Great, thank you. And how?
2: Sure. Uh, this is Hal McCard. I am uh, senior vice president and general counsel of Quorum Health Corporation. Uh, Quorum operates uh, 22 hospitals um, and some uh, associated clinics and physician practices in 13 states. Um, and uh, just delighted to be here and delighted to to hear from Peter Leibold again. This is just—it's too much, too much to uh, to really take. Almost it's fantastic. I
0: know. Like my, this is like this is old home reunion. Exactly. Well, I'm so excited to have you both here. It is like old. Well, it's like it is like a reunion, and I'm really excited to have both of you. I'm also excited because I think you um, have a really interesting perspective on what's been happening, you know, in the United States right now. Given that you are both in national systems with this vantage point, but I'd love to start first with, like um, what it's been like for, for you to do your job, um, virtually, um, what, let's, or, and, or going into office and what's that, what's that like? Um, I'll start with you. How have you been going into work and what, what is, it, what has it been like during these, this time, um, when a lot of the states had shut down?
2: I actually have been Sarah. We, um, I, I've been, I've been coming in continuously. Our, our offices are located in Brentwood, um, uh, Tennessee and for the first part of it I'd say March through um maybe May um the we were in compliance with uh the state um requirements on uh on sort of sheltering at home and things like it was optional uh whether to go into work or not and I and really about four or five other people um, had been coming into the office but I tell people I really see I saw less people here during that time than I would have. Shopping at uh, you know Publix or a grocery store, it was really only four or five of us, so it was it was pretty quiet out of a a, a workforce of in excess of a hundred. Um, but slowly, as, as as time has gone on, the workforce has returned uh, to the office, and we're actually just waiting to see um, uh, what direction it goes in. I think a lot of it's dictated by sort of the day to day. Uh, reporting uh, Tennessee unfortunately has is recently bubbled up as is uh, having a, a a bit more exposure and and a few and some more reported cases than to cause concern. So um, I, I think coming in coming in regularly though, I'm just not I'm not a home worker, so I hope uh, hope uh, maybe maybe Peter is, uh, but I, I have a hard time. I have a hard time doing it from the house.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I was trying to think what would change going back to if I ever had to go back into an office? And yes, we're more casual, but I do have to dress up for my laptop some days. But it's really shoes. Like, I feel like putting shoes on will be an interesting thing if I have to go back into an office ever again, because I, I sometimes am dressed up and then don't have shoes on. Um, how about you, Peter? Are you going into the office? I know you used to travel a lot back and forth um, between D.C. and St. Louis and other places. Um, how has it changed your, your job? It's it, it. Been amazing I have had the opposite experience so I
1: have not gotten on a plane since the first week of March it's just it's just earth-shattering I mean it's great like I, I can't believe how much that's changed and we I have not stepped in foot in my office since the first week of March so I have worked out of my home here in Falls Church and we have a place up in the Shenandoah and I've spent a lot of time there with my wife's parents um, You know they're in their 80s so we're trying to keep them in the protected bubble and uh trying to make sure they don't get into contact with those with COVID. so um it's been quite an experience and uh you know it is it is zoom calls basically from you know or google meets calls from morning to night uh and you know i'll say we have found ways to get our work done uh you know, and it's had some. I think it's had some positive impacts, kind of in the ways that we work, and it's accelerated some things, which I think needed to happen um, internally. So in that way, it's been good. But but it is weird. I mean, it's weird not going into an office, uh, not having that kind of personal connection that we all had, um, and seeing others struggle. Like you know, my kids are grown up. Like they're they're out of college. Um, but I have colleagues who have young kids, you know, that are, that are in the background and, you know, like you Sarah, like that, that, that blends your family life and your work life in ways. I mean, I, I'd be more interested to hear what you have to say about it than what I have to say, because I'm just basically working from home now. Um, but I don't have that kind of stress on me.
0: It's interesting. I would say, um, if I could only get them to review contracts or do like legislative analysis, they'd be really helpful to me. (laughs) Um, I think my favorite um, time, because I think I always say it's the over under on how many times they walk into my office and it's not been that many um, given like how long we've been at home with them. But I think my favorite was they were out playing in the sprinklers and came in and stripped down and like just walked into my office during like a pretty important call about um (laughs) looking at (laughs) looking at legislation um what you know basically legislative oversight during for future natural disasters and pandemics and it's a pretty serious crowd but i was able to turn the camera off in time (laughs) maybe we have that's a good button to learn the mute button and the off camera button um uh so um so peter you know you so dc shut down which i i was interesting because when I was in house in D.C. and we were doing like this pandemic preparedness, it was always like shutting down parts of D.C. It was never in my mind. I could never have fathomed. And I've heard this actually from working on some of these committees and, and talking to the leaders that do this kind of preparedness work. They never anticipated for all, all, like, all this shutdown. But in the even in the D.C. area, the idea that the government wouldn't be able to be in session together or these things would ha- happen like that. Um, how has that changed your, your job and advocacy? Because we've never seen more legal changes. We know that there's even another, there's more legislation coming. Um, We've never, hospitals probably have never needed, you know, help more um, given, you know, what was happening and what will happen. You know, how do you stay in touch and how do you do your job um, virtually? Yeah, it, 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 it has had an impact on that.
1: Uh, you're right. There are no visits up to the Senate of the House. There are no personal visits, but, but I, I, I want to commend uh, the government. I want to commend um, CMS and HHS. They've been doing great work from their homes or from wherever they're working from and, and really AHLA and, and my time there has been incredibly helpful because I, you know, I know, um, Kim Brandt. I know Vicki Robinson. I know others who uh, have been instrumental in, in you know, helping the government respond to the crisis. So the way we do it is, you know, we communicate with uh, people in the government, people in congressional offices, um, either on Zoom calls. I mean, we've had Zoom calls with. Um, Senator from Kansas, uh, with a number of members of Congress, uh, Senator Cornyn from Texas, been on Zoom calls with him, just m- making our case about the kind of relief that we need uh, during the crisis, and uh, so it it has morphed the same way that our work has morphed, uh, and they, I would say, you know, for a politician not to be able to press the flesh, that that must feel very. Kind of alarming for them, so they've been they've been very willing and uh, and able to do uh, this new form of communication so that we can get our our ideas in front of them.
0: That's I mean that's great feedback to hear because I I know we've had a lot of discussions about this idea of we all kind of need to be collaborative whether that's across in house or or even with the government like having I, you know we had a question and I was like. Calling around to people and trying to get um, people bec- to to hear it in the government too. Like who's the right person? Because you'll see FAQs come up or change about the distributions, and we all can. You know, we're getting the questions as they're coming, and they're. And I, I am seeing the government respond. Or they recently was helping a, a couple of clients with uh, app. Uh, they were applying into the Medicaid distribution, and then in the morning the deadline was one thing, and by the time I talked to a different client in the afternoon, it was like the deadline had changed. Um, and I was joking that that happens to me sometimes. Um, that's a positive change, uh, giving people more time to pull the applications together. Um, how how do you, Peter, how do you keep up with, how, or how did you keep up and how are you preparing to, to keep up if there's additional changes, you know, coming into the fall and winter? to to keep up with kind of legislative and regulatory changes and
1: and those things like that. Um, yeah, yeah, we are, we're keeping up and, and it's really, I think it's been a real benefit. Uh, you know, if you can talk about a benefit of COVID, uh, it, we are working incredibly closely with our legal team, with our compliance team, all of whom I really like and, you know, knew some of them from HLA and, uh, it has brought us together. So we, you know, just as you're working kind of as outside counsel, we work with in inside and, and outside counsel um, to make sure that we're updated uh, and to craft our responses. Um, so, yeah, we've been working on FAQs uh, out, of, out of HHS. Uh, we've been working on a white paper on virtual care, uh, all together to try to uh, make progress on virtual care. So, I'd say the way we do it is we just stay in really close contact with um, our legal and compliance expertise, and with members of government, and and with consultants uh, that we have on retainer that
0: you know continually feed us information about developments as they occur. Great. And Hal, so why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your legal department, and then. Um, We'll talk to a little bit about what's happening, what what you were managing during this time on top of COVID nineteen. So why don't you first start with a little bit about your legal department?
2: Yeah, well, it's very very small. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, basic, it's basically me and a paralegal um, with these uh, with these these far flung hospitals. Uh, so it does present it, it does present a number of challenges, and it's Peter just. Uh, uh, points out so well. I think uh, the opportunities for collaboration um, are numerous and the things that we seek to take advantage of the most, whereas his his collaboration tends, uh, to, because of the size of the system, I would think, uh, tends to be with his internal experts in legal and, and compliance. Um, mine tend to be a little bit more outward facing uh, simply because we outsource uh, and, and have to outsource um, part of the, part of the work that we do for the, uh, for the hospital affiliates. So that's been, uh, that's been similar, but just, I think for me as, as to Peter's experience, but just also different, but different in focus or a different direction, I guess would, would, would probably be, uh, be a better way to put that. But it, it's a lot to just on the operational side, it's a lot to keep up with because of the multi-state setting that the hospitals are in. Obviously the states have responded in different, um, different ways uh you know to, to just to issues such as uh, uh what are we going to do with electives and when when are they going to cease and when are they going to return and are we going to have to cut them back again and trying to monitor uh volume through the hospitals that are co- the volumes that are covid related to avoid surge situations and and uh restrict some of the states for example in mean, kentucky you know strikes me as a um is a particularly good example of that can be Kentucky uh, Medical Society it was very active from the very beginning um, because I, I think in a lot of states, uh, states we've looked toward the governor for, to be the sort of uh, Oracle of pronouncement in terms of what's happening and I think that's appropriate but the Kentucky Medical Society for example was very active early on in trying to provide guidelines for its physicians in the, the Kentucky State Medical Board through the Kentucky State Medical Board so Keeping up with just the various um, state responses, uh, a lot of which seem to be driven by the the incidence of the of the virus, at least on that level, or ha- has been a has been a challenge. But as Peter points out, great opportunities for collaboration with state decision makers um, as well as federal decision makers who are um, you know who are providing advice on this. So that's that's been just sort of in a nutshell, uh, at least my experience.
0: Yeah, and so it's also good for the audience to hear that what. Legal departments do come in all shapes and sizes, right? There's some that have hundreds of lawyers, and then there's some that have Hal, probably you probably count, probably count as a hundred lawyers because you're really good, but um, probably <laughs> doesn't feel that, that way. I yeah.
2: <laughs> don't have
0: to <laughs> time in <of> the day.
2: <laughs> so uh, sometimes, yeah, sometimes you feel like you've, you've been, you know, sometimes, you, sometimes you feel like different people all at one time. So <laughs> I'll give you that, although not not as bad as you know, sort of this civil type thing, you know, where I have you know 37 different personalities. Um, but yeah, with, you have to wear a lot of hats when, uh, when you're in a, a, a smaller size department, I think that's absolutely right.
0: So why don't you tell the audience about what you've been uh, on top of managing all this with COVID and, and the hospitals and the different states, your, your system, you were working through something with your system. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what, what you've been working on um, yeah, and mean, what transformations happened at your system? Yeah.
2: Yeah. The reorganization, the bankruptcy. Yep. Yeah, yeah, sure. Glad to. Yeah, I would be glad to touch on that. I've, we um, the the system it had had been burdened historically with um, a, a heavy debt load uh, that's that lasted really from the time that it was spun out, which was about four years ago. It's been about four years ago, and um, looked at a number of different uh, alternatives for for deal making. Uh, we're approached by uh, several different systems um, with merger concepts and things like that. Uh, none of them came to fruition, and it became obvious that it was going to be difficult to sustain. Uh, our, most, uh, most of our hospitals, with the exception of probably four or five of the 22, are sole uh, community provider settings. Um, they are rural settings. We um, really only have four or five in the system that would be considered to be in uh, more urban markets. And it became obvious after a while that the performance of the company wasn't going to be able to sustain the debt commitments that the company had. And so about six or eight months ago, uh, the debt holders um, were able to get organized and to present a plan to take the company private, but to take it private through uh, a Chapter 11 bankruptcy process, which is, is for those who, for those who are not bankruptcy lawyers, and I am not a bankruptcy lawyer, although I know a lot more about it than I used to, um, it was a, a prepackaged uh, type of bankruptcy in which we present the bankruptcy judge in the court with a with a uh, plan, if you will, uh, for going entering the process, uh, financing during the process, the bankruptcy process, and then um, a, a debt structure uh, post emergence from the bankruptcy process, which the court would then approve. So. We were able to do that. Uh, the prepackaged uh, type bankruptcies generally move a lot faster. Ours moved in about eight to 10 weeks, more or less, um, after we, uh, we met some objections um, from some of the folks who showed up. Uh, but that, that was a fascinating process. We think that that was the first um, fully uh, video uh, conducted bankruptcy process in the country uh, because we had filed so early, right after the court shut down. Uh, sometime at the end of uh, or about the middle of April um, and so we think in delaware it was it was in the delaware uh, delaware bankruptcy uh, court we think we think it was the first one uh, at least my counsel tells me that as far as they can determine, it was the first series of hearings held uh, preliminary hearings uh, and first day hearings held in a bankruptcy proceeding in the country so we we felt pretty pretty happy about that uh, in some regard. Uh, but yeah, it, it, we emerged. We're able to emerge on time and with a, a greatly uh, reorganized debt structure that made a lot more sense for the type of thing that we're doing. A- and uh, it, it was able. We were able to resolve some issues, and like I say, emerge as a stronger company with with uh, great opportunities for growth and potential for the future.
0: Yeah, there's a. You know, it's interesting because we're, we're talking a lot about distressed hospitals or. Or on the opposite side, um, systems that were buying up distressed hospitals, either out of mission or market or whatever the rationale was. Um, And it was funny because I'm not a bankruptcy lawyer at all either. And I met some of our distressed hospital team. Which mm-hmm. just I was like, we have interest rates, like that's a thing. And now, like in the pandemic, there it's there's law firms that are moving people around over into bankruptcy because not just in healthcare, but across industries. But
2: yeah, not oh, you, all you, that you, to yeah. be
0: said, right? All that to be said, it doesn't always have to be a bad thing. I mean, it can. A lot of times it would be, but there are. I mean, it's nice to hear your story because. Um, when we hear the word bankruptcy, we think, oh oh no, everything's you know all all these companies are going under
2: right um, well, that most people think liquidation, you know they they think mm-hmm. you know, looking pretty much liquidation and selling off of assets, although I was you know and to satisfy the claims of the creditors, although I was you know it was a fat it was a great education I mean i I can tell you it was a great education that our our prepackaged proceeding was was distinguishable from a, a, a what did. What I learned that people refer to as a free fall bankruptcy, which is more of a, a liquidation type proceeding. Um and, and you know, it's it's been interesting, I mean, with some of the uh with some of the uh the properties, what has happened to them. I mean, we had it we we actually we had to close a hospital um in in Blue Island, uh Illinois, uh which was a process that took uh, about six to eight months as we were working with the IDPH and the, the various, you know, state officials. And the local, uh, the local political interests to try and come to a satisfactory solution on that. But we, we found out not too long ago that the, uh, the state, the, and so the campus was essentially closed, and it was the property was eventually bought by a by a buyer uh, who wanted to develop it. Um, for some healthcare purpose that was not acute care hospital related, but we found out recently that the state had filed um, a petition for eminent domain on the property to reopen it and to re- try and respond to the COVID crisis. So we were, we were well past ownership by that point and had and had um, and had disposed of the hospital to the buyer. But we were fascinated uh, that that uh, sort of thing was, was happening. And, and Blue Island's on the south side of Chicago. Uh, but we're fascinated that that had sort of been the ultimate fate that it would now the hospital, which was, in you know, still in working order when it was shut. Uh, there was nothing wrong with it. It's fully licensed and accredited. Um, we we're fascinated to see that it was now the subject of an imminent domain proceeding under the state's emergency powers due to the COVID crisis. So you just never know how those things will turn out.
0: No, I guess you I guess you don't, because I know there were other hospitals in other states where they some of them were left abandoned, or like basically, I mean, someone owned the property in the building, but they weren't used at all. Um, yeah, here in Tennessee
2: use. yeah. Here in yeah. Tennessee, they're looking at reopening a couple, so, several of the, of the more rural hospitals that had closed during the past, not hours, but during the past year or two years or so that could still be used, um, could still be used in a, in a hospital, in a hospital way, you know, that hadn't deteriorated to the point that they were unusable anymore.
0: Yeah. So, so Peter, you're, um, in a, in a different type of system because you're in a state-based um, nonprofit system how do you how do and I and I'd like to contrast with how was saying because even in a for-profit system in out of Nashville you know but in in both cases it's about you know serving the communities and um, interacting with the state and in some cases survival or interact or partnering with physicians you know what are some of the strategies and and advocacies that are happening around that. I mean, what happened, and, and what do you what do you think might happen in the future?
1: Well, it, uh, it, there's been a lot of financial stress. I mean, you can't overemphasize that. Uh, once electives uh, were uh, prevented in many instances uh, by state executive orders, um, you know that 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 dries up your revenue. Uh, and so, you know, I think. I think all health systems, whether for-profit or nonprofit, um, have had to deal with, you know, a, a depletion in their revenue stream. Um, so advocacy became all the more important. I mean, you know, the the, the revenue that we have gotten uh, and the loans that we have gotten um, from the federal government, uh, and 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 we're hoping that in this next bill. Uh, they will amend the terms uh, of the loans that were provided to healthcare uh, so that they can be paid back over a longer term, uh, and they can be paid back uh, without doing 100% of the payment uh, when they come due. Um, but that said, they've been incredibly beneficial, uh, and we, you know, we are in indebted to. Uh, Congress and to the administration and to others for seeing the need to provide those resources to hospitals and health systems throughout the country. Because, you know, as you implied, I mean, it it has been very, very difficult for um, many hospitals, Um, some in areas of the country where COVID was not as uh, alarming in the spring, just laid fallow. And lost revenue. Others became overwhelmed, and you know we we have uh, hospitals in Detroit, uh, in Michigan, in Illinois, in Chicago. Uh, they were overrun, uh, and you know the state and our uh, Michigan uh, hospitals collaborated on uh, setting up uh, you know alternative hospitals, uh, alternative places where people could go. So. That, that's been one issue with this uh, uh, pandemic is that it, it surges in some areas and it doesn't surge in others, um, which does argue for state, uh, you know, that there can be differences in state policy with respect to them. Uh, but obviously there are, uh, you know, there, there are some things that everyone should do throughout the country to try to reduce the spread of the pandemic. But it's... It, you know, it it has been difficult for us financially, um, but I think that our, our clinicians, and you know, it, it, it's said all the time, but it deserves to be said. They they have been heroes in this. Uh, they have risked their lives going into hospitals throughout the country in order to care for um, COVID positive patients, you know, putting themselves at risk, uh, trying not to put their families at risk, but by doing so, se- segregating themselves from their families. Um, so, you know, I just uh, kudos to doctors, nurses, those people that do uh, supply work, those who are cleaning in our hospitals and our nursing homes. And I mean, they, 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 the list is endless of people that have sacrificed themselves to um, to serve the communities. But uh, it it it's been it's been difficult. Uh, you know, it's been a challenge. Um, but but I feel like Ascension, in many respects, has risen to that challenge and. and And our board has been understanding of the fact that that we're facing these financial challenges and we're trying to innovate, deliver care as best we can.
0: So I feel so the same way about all the people on the front line that, you know, what's hard to see were the pictures of people in trash bags trying to care for patients because they didn't have the proper PPE. And, you know, we're hearing less and less about that, but I know we're going in, um, for those of you who do spend a lot of time in healthcare, we know the flu season can be different each year, but we have that potentially overlying COVID-19. I, I was reading that there was some cities in other parts of the world that were showing that because we're, if you're socially distancing with masks and washing your hands more, there may be less transmission, but we, you know, we don't know how that may impact us here. But, but ultimately we may be back to thinking about um, PP. Is that on your radar at all? Um the things I've been thinking about are PPE, obviously vaccines and innovation. Um are you know are those things that that you think about and advocating in going into the fall and winter?
1: Absolutely. Oh my gosh, they're they're very high on the agenda. We we are lucky enough to have a kind of an internal purchasing group called the resource group. Uh, and they deserve commendation. Uh, For the efforts they put in to try to get us PPE, I mean the efforts, and this is where, you know, I'm sure Hal has similar stories where everyone had to do everything. Um, You know, I was on calls with people that were offering, you know, different ways to try to get PPE from different countries, and I would put them (laughs) in touch with the resource groups so that they could reach out to people. To to they they really tried everything they could to make sure that the clinicians had the supplies that they needed. Um, and so uh, we, we we they have been heroic uh, at the resource group and, it, and it, it could still very well be an issue as could testing. And we have a national testing lab that um, has uh, been, you know, making every effort to try to keep us uh, with a with a decent testing supply uh, in Florida, we started running drive-through testing, um, and we've been trying to innovate in that area as well. And I think doing it fairly successfully, but that remains an issue. Um, I think we're collaborating with almost all of the pharmaceutical companies that are trying to develop a vaccine. Uh, we want to be, um, you know, involved in those. Uh, but you're right to point to that. I think everybody. You know, everybody wants to see, uh, you know, an accelerated development of that vaccine that will give people confidence that um, they can, you know, reenter public life and the economy in a way where that will help the economy grow. So all three of those issues that you mentioned are of enormous import to us. Uh, we have people working around the clock on them and doing a great job from, uh, from our perspective. Um, but it's not easy, uh, and they run into challenges every single day, and so, you know, as I said before, we in Advocacy have been collaborating with so many people now in the system that that we otherwise probably wouldn't have had as much contact with, and uh, those who do testing and those who try and get PPE uh, and uh, those who are interested in vaccines, we are uh, we are very much in contact with them and trying to be a resource for them in any way that they think helps them do their job more effectively.
0: Yeah, so how I think Peter just said it, like, did you have some of those experiences? Because I know I did, I was like, I would get, I guess it was interesting to be in a position where you're a law firm where you were getting things and I would like someone say, oh, I know someone that has like maps and I'd like send it to like a bunch of lawyers who would then forward it off to their supply chain um, folks. Um, did you have those, any of those experiences where you were working through yeah, some I of is- those issues?
2: Yeah, I had a number of them. I got more interesting emails it, it, during the during the first iteration, during you know, sort of the end of February, first of March, when the when the thing really gained some. I think gained some traction when the virus really gained a lot more traction, became more of a national, you know, national story. And then the the stories about the strain on the healthcare system. But I was amazed at the resourcefulness of some of my local council um, at, at coming up with. Um, sources, uh, for, uh, for various of the PPE and the, the masks, um, and, and just various and sundry other supplies. So yeah, I, d- I did. I got some interesting, like I, said, I got some interesting emails from from some interesting places as well. Uh, but we're fortunate. We have a, a GPO, a group purchasing organization that we have access to that, that was also, I think took a lot of the, um, uh, took a lot of the, the sort of ups and downs out of it, made it a little bit more, um, or evened out the rough edges I guess would might be a better way to put it uh, and so even though supplies may have been lower there was uh, there wasn't quite this um, fear of running out you know running out of equipment to zero um, as, as opposed to to knowing and being able to predict what the supply chain was going to look like to the extent that we could and so we could you know trying to plan accordingly um but yeah, that was the supply—the sort of underground, the underground supply market was uh, was hopping there for for some period of time. And I see where I see where a lot of it's been in the subject of federal enforcement <laughs> now, in terms of uh, some criminal enforcement and some uh, and some other uh, and and some other things. So I, I I I commend the the efforts to get it, but also the efforts to to try and control it and maintain some quality over it.
0: Right, so how about, um, how about testing and, and, and other innovations? I know you're going through a reorganization, um, but those, things, those two items are also really important. What, how are those, um, how, I mean, obviously testing has been, we're seeing the evolution of those and we're, hopefully there's more innovation going, um, but how do you see that playing into um, the rest of the summer and, and fall and winter?
2: Yeah, I mean, you'd hope to see a, a continuous increase in it. I mean, we we enter that question, I think, more from the standpoint of safeguarding the um, well-being of our of, of our workforce and our employees and the folks that Peter um, so eloquently talked about, who who are out there caring for folks. I mean, they're they're really our first um, first concern uh, as far as testing, community testing, and you know uh, matters like that. I mean, we've seen. You know, speaking just from from personal experience here in Tennessee, we've seen a great um, increase uh, in in the availability um, of of COVID testing. I would I would hope that that would continue, uh, you know, as we go into the as as we go on into the fall. Um, and it it impacts a lot of you know it's a lot of uh, different aspects. Of it, you know whether the kids can return to school or not. That's a very hot issue here in Nashville right now. Uh, what's the school year going to look like? Um, how's that going to you know how's that going to work? What sort of testing will there be uh, on a regular basis and uh, how will, how will they control that? So it's going to continue to be a you know a huge uh, I think a huge issue as far as the vaccine goes. I think that's the sort of holy grail. That's what everybody seems to be waiting for it um, and with good reason. Uh, but you know kind of it's almost I I kind of liken it to being stalked by a turtle almost because there's this this seems to be this psychologically slow process where you know we think we beat it back a little bit and then it flares up uh, in various hot spots again uh, whether by city or by state uh, or by region in some cases and it's just this inexorable um, spread it seems that sometimes that uh, that hopefully the the vaccine, we see promising things The Southern are going to enter a phase three on one of them. Um, I don't know if it's the Oxford, and then if, if it's the Oxford group or not, I forget uh, just right offhand, but there does seem to be a number of, and I saw Pfizer recently, the other day I saw Pfizer had been, had received a contract to produce uh, multiple million doses along with one or two of the others. So that was all, you know, all very promising news, but I think the, the vaccine is, is what everybody seems to be waiting for.
0: And the other thing I've been thinking about um, is nursing homes, uh, because, yeah. right, I mean, so when you look at, like, the statistics, even you look at over 60, and then you really look at that population of over 60, and you look at the over 80, and then you, um, years old, and you look at, um, you know, and you, and, and they seem like the over eighty seem most vulnerable, and if you look at where that population sits, it's often in a nursing home, yeah, so of course. I don't know, I'll start with. That with yeah, you how so like what have you been thinking about that and how do you how, how do hospitals partner with that with nursing homes and how do we like because we're, we're serving our communities how do yeah, we, we do that we don't have,
2: yeah we don't have a lot we've got um we've got uh two or three skilled nursing facilities that we um that we operate and obviously they're they're in full lock and i'll tell you just a personal story my mom's in a skilled nursing facility in georgia and i haven't seen her since um probably january because well february yeah because the thing's been just on Absolute and my uh, my father, they live in a sort of multi-level um, uh, community where there are all different levels of healthcare available as people progress through life. Um, so it's, and that thing's been on uh, uh, lockdown since March. Uh, so, you know, just even, even from a, a personal standpoint, I haven't been able to see my parents since then because access to, the, to their community has been restricted. Uh, with good reason, I think it's prudential. Um, you know, it's, it's been clear that once the virus gets in amongst that population, it, it wreaks havoc and results in a lot of deaths. So, uh, so sort of, you know, on the one hand, you understand why it is, but on the other hand, you know, you can see, um, you can see what it what it would do. And we've we've obviously the, where our where our nursing facilities were involved, we've we've taken uh, sort of draconian uh, or, or most protective measures, uh, you know, to try and protect that that particular population.
0: Yeah, and I'm sorry to hear about your parents. I think it's a pretty, it's a fairly, it's fairly common. You know some visitations have been allowed in certain um, nursing homes, but I, you know, think about some of the studies that were done around, uh, uh, you know, just that population, but just, pe- I mean, the be in people being around people and how, uh, as, as humans, that's something that we crave and, and need, um, and so, Peter, how about you? Have you been thinking about nursing homes and the interaction with nursing homes and in, in the communities that you serve?
1: Absolutely. Um, Ascension has over 50 senior living communities in 12 states and in Washington D.C. And um, you know, for a while there in the spring, there were daily calls from our command center. Uh, and thankfully, you know, because you, you read about stories where. Uh, if, if nursing homes were not doing COVID protection the right way, it just spread like wildfire through their senior living communities. Uh, and we definitely uh, had some instances of COVID. Uh, we had some deaths, uh, you know, in, in our facilities. But to the best of my knowledge, I don't think we had one of those situations where it just started spreading like wildfire through the community. So that that's kudos to Ascension Living and their leadership and the people on the ground. Um, they, you know, I, I they 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 would be humble enough to say that they were lucky enough to learn uh, uh, from the CDC, from others, from best practices put out by their associations. That's the value of associations. I'm sure that the senior living associations were offering educational opportunities. Uh, they put those into practice. And, um, you know, while there were absolutely challenges, uh, there was a woman, Deb Balkenberg, that was on our calls uh, every day. um they 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 seemed to have done the work necessary to avoid, you know, cataclysmic events. but they they were on our mind every day. Uh, you know, I know um, Danny Stricker, who heads up Ascension Living, was on some of those association calls and was talking about, you know, the need for PPE, the need for resources. Uh, you know, the uh, the provider relief fund. Um, it, it was always misnamed over a hospital fund, uh, and you know, only probably half of the resources went to hospitals. Um, but I think senior living uh, and nursing homes had, uh, you know, a cognizable claim that not enough resources were being put to them. When, as you said, Sarah their communities were the vulnerable community. They were the ones that if they got COVID, you know, it would have really bad ramifications. So, you know, it, it was definitely on our mind all the time. Uh, and I think that, you know, they needed, uh, they probably needed more resources than they got um, for uh, the kind of issues that they had during this crisis and will continue to have. So. You know, it is it, it's constantly on my mind, um, and uh, hopefully, you know, we'll just continue to advocate so that they get the resources they
0: need. Great. No, that's I, I've been thinking a lot about it, and having talked to senior living communities and others that before there was any funding, they were um, they were lo- they were losing population both by um, not being able to take new um, New members, but also because people were like, in some in some cases, people were were dying of COVID because they were in a surge area, for example, and um, and they were trying to do their best and do all the things that they needed to, but they were uh, didn't always have the resources that they needed to do that. And I think there's a common theme of like we need to make sure the people that have the resources um, have them, right? I mean, it, it seems to be what we what what's so important um right now to think about and that's what i've been thinking a lot about um so you know let's so it's summer (laughs) i know we're gonna like we have different seasons right and we're it's hard to imagine that we were in march you know february march and now we're in we're in the summer um what have you both like i'll start with you peter what have you been doing to like you know take a deep breath knowing that we're going into fall like how so? there's so, you know, our communities are thinking about schooling and whether to go back, testing, all the things we're talking about, PPE, um, our, work, our workforce and healthcare have had, uh, gone through a lot, whether they had a lot of cases or were just preparing for the cases that didn't come um, or are getting cases now. I mean, how are you, how, how are you personally you know, taking a deep breath and, and getting ready for the fall and winter and what's to maybe potentially to come?
1: No, it's it's important for all of us to do. I, you know, I was on calls last couple of days, and you know, people kept using the expression that um, employees been muscling through. They've been, you know, using momentum to continue to be as productive as possible. You know, kind of riding the emergency high of the spring, but it's going to give out. Um, it, it, you, you can't keep going. At a relentless, relentless pace, without mm-hmm. trying to find times to recover. Um, so one thing, and and it is great that there's been this kind of cultural recognition um, that one employees, if they possibly can, should take their PTO, their paid time off. Uh,
2: and if they do, and
1: this was there was a great example on a call today. It was a leadership call, and we were discussing an important topic, uh, actually, you know, about the fall and the winter. And so there was a guy that got on, uh, a good friend of mine, because um, he thought the topic was really important, but he was on PTO. Um, and the CEO, who was leading the discussion, um, had called on everyone to talk about this particular issue and had not called on him. So I, I texted the CEO and said, hey, you know, this guy's on the phone. And he, and he called on him. He said, you know, I thought you were on PTO. The guy said, yeah, but this is a really important topic. I wanted to phone in. He's like, you got to take your PTO. Um, I didn't know you were on the phone. Uh, you know, I think if you're taking PTO, you got to take time for yourself and for your family. And to set the example, the CEO was on PTO last week, and he totally, he totally disengaged to the degree that he could. I mean, I'm sure you know, I probably don't even know of the circumstances where he had to be brought back in to make decisions. But he is trying to set the example of taking PTO and really taking time off with his family to recharge, to recharge his batteries, and he's telling all of us, do the same, Don't and not only because you're doing it for yourself, but to set the example for everyone else that when you take PTO, you disengage, and that is kind of a cultural change, and one of the guys on the phone this morning said that, like, you know, he, he took PTO in the past, but he did calls, he was checking his email, he was making sure he wasn't missing anything because he kind of thought that was the expectation. So by the CEO making this like a serious issue and by actually upgrading the guy on the phone from being even on the phone because he was on CTO, it just sets a really good example. And I, and I I commend him for it. I think we all need it. We're gonna burn out. You can't go at this pace forever. Um, and so, you know, what I, what I do, because I can't, you know, Hal and I were talking about the beginning, I can't play soccer. But, you know, we're not, I, I, I'm not in the Premier League, so I can't be tested and go out with my buddies and play soccer every weekend. So I've become a big Peloton guy. I just you got a Peloton, I get on there, I'll, I'm going to get on there after my calls today. Um, it's important for me to exercise kind of hard on a regular basis. All my old colleagues at AHLA will remember that. That is kind of important to my mental health, so I'm just finding ways to do that, even in an era where you can't play socially like I used to. Um, I'm still getting out on a bike, you know, working hard, trying to get out in a steam, sweat, um, just, you know, stay as fit as I can in this time, but it's a really important issue. I'm glad you raised it, Sarah. All of us. Need to take
0: that time off if you can. Yeah, I was talking to a CEO today and she was saying, because I tried to take Tim off and I'm awful about it. And um, because I don't, I, I want to make sure I'm responding to people. But, um, and she was saying the same thing. She's like, I think I took a week off, but it didn't count. <laughs> I think I did, you know, if you're, especially if you're working at home most days and you end up working the same hours, that you didn't take those days off. That doesn't count, right? Um, um, how, how about you? What are some of the things that you've done to kind of regroup, um, before we get into fall and winter?
2: Yeah, well, I, I completely agree with Peter on the importance of, of just regular physical activity. I mean, I, I, I work out with a trainer three days a week and I run on the weekends. Um, it's just part of my personality. It's something I have to do to, to maintain sanity. Um, just, uh, with, you know, with, uh, with everything, but I, you know, and I, I completely agree. I haven't really thought about, I really, really haven't thought that far ahead to tell you the truth, which is probably to my, to my discredit. <laughs> um, it's really been more of a one, one day at a time, one week at a time uh, for, for some time How I'm making uh,
0: I'm making you I'm making you plan now No, it's good. Yeah. About- we would normally
2: we would normally go you know to do something in a beach setting around labor day you know traditionally we would we would do something like that and I really haven't thought that far ahead the beach is you know if you're if you're properly socially distanced the beach might be an inviting place um, but we'll have to we'll have to see. I, like I say, we didn't didn't have any uh, don't don't have any plans uh, yet. But this is probably going to give me a catalyst to, to try and, and think about it a little bit more. So thanks for that. I appreciate that, Sarah.
0: See, learn stuff on the podcast, and now I'm going to harass you about bug you constantly, you like, your tur- like your slow turtle, like your slow turtle analogy. Yeah, I mean, and I'm going to make sure that, that is it a position. great analogy.
1: I'm going to steal that phrase. I love that phrase. I've never heard it before. That is a great phrase. I
2: have added. I, I just, uh, it just, that's what it seems like. I mean, you, you look over your shoulder, it's still there. Well, yeah, you look over your shoulder, it's still there, a little bit closer. Well, look over, yeah, it's still there, you yeah. know. So it was just, I don't know, it just kind of seemed the way it was. <laughs> I think that's great.
0: Um, so, Hal, why don't you, um, you know, we're getting to the end here, um, and I think I could probably talk to you both for hours and hours, um, but why don't you? Why don't you uh, tell us something you'd like to leave the audience with? What's something that you would like to take away for the audience today?
2: Well, I, I think we've covered, uh, the, you know, really just uh, in summary, I think we've covered a, a lot of things that that I hope folks will, will find useful, you know, and, and personally, as well as just sort of in regard to our systems. Um, don't lose hope, you know, <laughs> don't uh, try to maintain patience is, you know, patience is a good thing. Uh to, to try to uh, to maintain as well. So you know, I think I think hope and patience uh, in in difficult times. Uh, obviously, it's going to call for folks, uh, and and I'm especially proud of all of our AHLA members um, who will be asked to demonstrate leadership as well. And and there's a reason that the association I think is so successful um, because its members take uh, their mission very very seriously. And so uh, it, it, there will be opportunities, I think, in this for folks to demonstrate leadership and to demonstrate um, what they have and what they can do. And I just kind of ask them to, you know, accompany it with uh, with that little little bit of extra patience and hope, and, and never lose never lose sight of that. You know, we're we're going to move to a to better days ahead. I think. Um, and a little bit more normalization. So uh, I think if anything, I'd, I'd ask folks to consider that, and also to thank them for for spending the, the last uh, 30, 40 minutes with us. We, we certainly appreciate that as well.
0: Great, thanks, Hal. How about you, Peter?
1: Boy, Hal, Hal hit it. Um, you know, I, I, what this, in the context of HLA, what, what this has brought home to me was the importance of the relationships that are created in uh the american health lawyers association and the the fact really that it's not an advocacy organization i'm an advocacy now but these relationships were in many ways built up in the context of an association where people are not advocating with each other so you just get to strengthen your relationships and you know in times of stress relationships matter and we're kind of learning how to continue relationships, like we're doing this on the phone, or we could be doing it on a Zoom call, or, you know, so that puts stress on relationships. But the fact that there is an association that believes in studying health law, making health law better, doing it together between private sector and government, um, means that when the stress comes, uh, when there's a crisis, um, the strength of those relationships matter. And uh, you know there's no one that can probably better talk to that than David Gage, who runs it now and has you know served for a long time in government and now runs the association as to how those relationships can really make a difference. So I'd give you the same advice as how um, be patient, uh, believe in something that's bigger than yourselves uh, and and we all need to do that um, in order to, uh, have the patience to ride this out, um, you know, and and as you implied, Sarah, in your questions, be as innovative and transformative as you can. We're trying to do that with virtual care. Let's, let's to the best of our ability, try and build opportunity out of crisis. Uh, and so I'm just glad that uh, I've had such great experiences with HLA, and that it's been such a large part of the relationship building that that is critical to the job I do now and was central to the job I did then.
0: Well thank you, Peter. And thank you, Hal. And thanks for leaving with that because you know I know you go through AHLA and uh, and uh, and I feel like I feel closer to people. There's just something about um, during these times where you know you like you said, Peter, you could feel more distant, but I feel like because of the strength of the association, I feel closer to people. And so I really appreciate you both joining us today. I appreciate the audience joining us today. And I would direct everyone to go to the uh, AHLA uh, Coronavirus Hub if you need uh, additional information, if you wanna listen to the other podcast, Also, if you wanna uh, join the membership, that would be great. Um, I really, really appreciate everyone joining us today. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much. All right. Thank you all. Thanks for having us.